Welcome to the grand opening of the Deep Reporting Podcast with Rex Carlin. Before we get started, I want to briefly explain what we'll be doing with this show so you can fully experience these episodes. Each episode, I'll speak with a long-form reporter about an interesting piece they've written. The criteria for the journalists I reach out to to be on the show will consist of passing two tests. Am I interested in the topic of the story, and do I believe my audience will be interested in the topic of the story? We'll discuss not only the article or story itself, but also what kind of work went into researching, investigating, and writing the piece before it ever went to print. What we won't do is summarize the story in full during the podcast, so I strongly advise going and reading the article we're discussing before you start listening to the podcast episode. That way you'll have a much easier time following along. Other than that, I don't really have any parameters for the show, and I hope that loose structure intrigues you as much as it interests me. The first two episodes being released each cover a hot-button topic at the top of everyone's minds, both during the 2016 election cycle and into today. Episode 2 covers mental health treatment in a state completely overwhelmed by its lack of facilities to handle people affected by it. I talked with Sarah Smith, who wrote What Are We Going to Do About Tyler, a story published by ProPublica in December 2017 about the story of Tyler Eyre, who spent 1,266 days, more than three years, in Mississippi's Calhoun County Jail, simply waiting for a pre-trial mental health evaluation. Sarah and I discuss how she found Tyler in his case, why Tyler's story isn't by any means a unique one in Mississippi, and why county jails throughout the state have turned into long-term lockup for people with mental illness. Let's get into episode two of Deep Reporting with Rex Carlin. Thanks for joining me today and taking a minute out of your busy schedule. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the inaugural launch of your podcast. What are we going to do about Tyler? This is a really interesting read, but more importantly, it's it's more of a, a disturbing read almost that this is the state of mental health, not only in America, but specifically in Mississippi. First off, could we start from the beginning? How did you find out about this story? Was it your own research? Did somebody reach out to you? And how did you go about trying to untangle this really complicated mess that's going on in Mississippi? So I was actually, I would come off of a ProPublica fellowship and I was doing a three month stint as a legislative reporter with the Associated Press in Jackson, Mississippi. And I was really interested in all things mental health and mental health care. And I heard about these forensic waitlist problems and I ended up getting a freelance, being able to freelance the story with ProPublica after I was done with the Associated Press. And I actually called every single sheriff in Mississippi. Not all of them took my calls, um, but the one most of them did. And I asked them, hey, have you ever had anybody sitting in your jail for a really long time waiting to get a mental evaluation for their trial? And as, as it turns out, a lot of them had. And in that, I found the case of Tyler Hare. Is, is this the most extreme case, or is this just one of the many that you found? Because it, I know you, you mentioned a couple in there, 
um, or more than a couple um, instances where people had waited 800, 900, over a thousand days for these mental health evaluations basically before they could even get tried for their crimes. Where did he fall in line? Or was this just a character that, that, that was picked to, to fit for this story? He was one of the most extreme cases. There are instances where people are luckier and maybe only wait 80 days. There are middle cases where people wait 500 days. And then there are the Tylers of the world who wait 1,266 days. But many of the cases in Mississippi are on that extreme level in the 800, 900, over a thousand day scale of waiting. Mental health and funding for mental health obviously is a, a talked about issue throughout the country. But in your investigating, in your reporting, what, what did you find out about why is Mississippi in particular one of, if not the most hardest hit when it comes to slashing the funding for mental health services in the state? Yeah, I mean, something to emphasize is, as you said, this isn't just a Mississippi problem. This forensic waitlist issue, definitely not just a Mississippi problem. Um, Almost every state in America has these forensic waitlists. But again, Mississippi's is the the most extreme forensic waitlist. Mississippi is one of the poorest states in the country. And when you are a poorer state, it turns out that mental health care is not one of your priorities for funding. And Mississippi with this forensic wait list is uh, kind of a special case because the unit where they do these evaluations was built in 1955. As it turns out, it has not been updated since 1955. And the capacity is uh, 15 beds for these pretrial evaluations. So they only have 15 beds to serve the whole state, and they do not have enough doctors. So you're pretty much going to be left with this wait list. When you went out and did interviews with sheriffs around the state, particularly the sheriff of, I believe it was Calhoun County, where Tyler was actually locked up, you talk to other law enforcement officials, other people in mental health throughout the state. What was the vibe? Were, were, were these people pointing fingers at other people but acknowledging there was a problem? Were people defensive about there being a problem? What, what was sort of the vibe you got from people in official roles in Mississippi? In law enforcement in particular was pretty open that there was a problem. I spent a lot of time and was welcomed by the sheriff's department in Calhoun County. And because they wanted to show the state of Mississippi and show the rest of the country that they're the ones who bear the burden of underfunded mental health resources, that jails are really no place for the mentally ill. I had really interesting conversations with lawyers, judges who knew that a lot of the burden of mental health treatment, I guess treatment's not really the word, but a lot of the burden of caring for the mentally ill falls in the criminal justice system, and that's it's not good for the criminal justice system, it's not good for society, it's not any sort of treatment for the mentally ill. There is this general sense of that we really need to do better. And what was the reaction you got when you brought this up to the people on the other side, the people that you know are responsible for setting the budgets and for, for basically 
bearing the responsibility of funding or not funding mental health? I was not granted any interviews with the governor, lieutenant governor, house speaker, who are really uh, quite central for setting the budget in Mississippi. So I really couldn't tell you, despite multiple asks. Mississippi is currently in its legislative session. There's a bill going through that would allocate more money for some mental health treatment. I don't know how it's going to go. We'll see, uh, I guess, in the next few months. There are some legislators who are trying to, or have made it their priority to get more mental health funding and have had it as a priority for years, and, and none of those bills have really gone anywhere. Now, reading the story, it sounds like Tyler and his family were kind of living this nightmare from from the start, not just after the stabbing incident. It sounds like his mom tried to get him treatment pretty early on in childhood, and that was unsuccessful, and they were sort of living this nightmare. Is that the sort of sense you got from, from his family and from this story, is that this was more than just something that happened when he was in his teens? This was a lifelong battle that still hasn't been that been conquered yet? Yeah, I mean, I want people to come away with how difficult this was and still is for this family. They knew there was a problem, and to the best of their ability, they sought help that they continuously felt they weren't getting. Is there anything that they might have missed, or did they turn over every stone and this was just maybe a systematic failure for, you know, trying to get help from for their child? You know, it seemed, I mean, from my conversations with the family, they certainly felt like they had tried to go everywhere and explain his problems as fully as they possibly could. And certainly, they were not and still are not very well off, so they couldn't buy his way out of the public system, as some families are lucky to be able to do with their children. So for the public system, they felt like they had really taken him everywhere and not gotten what they felt they needed. Now, what were some of the biggest takeaways or surprises that um, you came away with from researching this and reporting this story? And then I guess, secondly, what would you want your readers to take away from reading your story? Oh, gosh, now you're the really big questions. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing um, to me was just so heartbreaking, even writing it and going into these interviews with Tyler's family, the sheriff, just these, I mean, these especially like thinking of the sheriff's department, these seem to me to, to be very good people who tried to do their best to get this evaluation moving in time, and they couldn't by themselves fix the system it's a very systemic problem and and so for for your your takeaway from that obviously then was like wow there's people actually trying to do something here and and it's just not budging anyway yeah and in so many of these we read a lot of stories that are person x sarah smith is in jail she's been in jail for the last 10 years because the defense attorney thought the prosecutor handled it, but the prosecutor thought the judge handled it, who thought it was on a different judge's docket. So basically, basically the gist of those stories are Sarah Smith got lost in the justice system. No one kept track of her. What is that, the part that was just so astounding to me, even though I guess reading it, it's almost obvious, is these people who are waiting so long, they're not lost in the system. 
the state keeps track of them. Like they're they're there. Everybody knows they're there, but they're still delayed months, weeks, years. Like that is how backed up it is, and everybody knows it. It's not even a secret. It's like you have people in these jails that need a mental health evaluation before anything can even move forward in their cases. And, I mean, that sounds to me like a problem with uh, right to a speedy trial, things like that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, we do have constitutional right to a speedy trial. And in Mississippi, the statute requires that a case be brought to trial within 270 days of indictment. But actually, while Tyler was still in jail, a case made its way to the Mississippi Supreme Court when a man argued that his right to speedy trial had been violated. And part of the reason he alleged for his delay was uh, delay in his own evaluation, but the Mississippi Supreme Court ruled that this wait for evaluation was actually good cause. So, in uh, in layman's terms, like it was okay that he that the he'd had to wait a while for his evaluation, and that caused delay in his trial. They said since the mental health evaluation could could benefit you, that it's an okay reason to delay it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good cause. Is the technical wording? Wow. So yes, it's uh, they find a loophole in it so that they don't necessarily have to fix the bigger problem. You know, I don't know if you can attribute the judge's ruling to something that uh, sounds a little nefarious for the Supreme Court judge's ruling reasons, but that does uh, make it harder to fix from a litigation standpoint. Yes. Turning over to, to when you talk to Tyler's family, first off, did you get to meet Tyler in person or talk to him directly or just his family, or how did that work? I unfortunately did not get to meet Tyler in person. The uh, Mississippi Department of Corrections uh, denied that request, but I did get to talk to him over the phone. What was that conversation like? I mean, I, I in the article, it read as though, depending on who he was talking to and when, he either knew why he was in jail or he didn't or he didn't remember doing something or he did. What was that conversation like with, with, when you got to talk to him? Um, to me, he, in the beginning, didn't recount some of what happened that day. Then he discussed it. Um, to the best of his ability, which was not recalling all of it. we What was quite striking to me is we discussed his plea bargain, and he didn't understand the technical term for the plea bargain that he used, that he said he had, un- that his lawyer said he understood in court. Um, and he, yeah, we talked for a while. He once talked about uh, what jail was like, what he wanted to do after. But I, I am sad I didn't get to see him in person. That is my one, uh, oh, I wish I had that moment of the story. Now, when you when you spoke to Tyler's family, his mother specifically, um, what was that like? I mean, is that, is she just, I, I know that it was mentioned in the story that she kind of always thought he would end up in jail. She was worried that she would end up like that. She tried to do she feels she tried to do her best she's worried she didn't and obviously she's pretty conflicted because he he did a terrible thing but she's her uh his mother and she loves him 
And is that something right now? Is she is she sad? Is she worn out? What I mean, what is her feeling right now? Is she lost all the energy to fight? Is she still fighting? Uh, what what are those thoughts? How did she express that to you? I think you can very. I think you can say all of the above. I mean, she's gone through something unimaginable. She's she wanted to talk to me because she wants to fight for her son and the system that made her life so hard. She's worn out from everything she's gone through. Her, she's broken hearted over what happened. She still has two other children. She's happy with with much of her life. It's hard to summarize all that complexity in a few words, but I'm amazed that she has managed to keep going through all she's been through. Did you receive any pushback from anybody in the state of Mississippi with the government, with anyone in there as far as trying to run this story? Did anyone try to push you off it? Like, what was that like? Was there was there pushback or was it everyone just trying to get the word out, but then kind of pointing the finger at somebody else for whose fault it was? Nobody, I mean, nobody said to me, uh, if you run this X, Y, Z, horrible thing will happen or we'll sue you, blah, blah, blah. Um, the Department of Mental Health was not cooperative. I would have loved to be able to sit down with them and hear their perspective on what was going on, what they've been trying to do to make the situation better. Unfortunately, they did not want to sit down with me. The same goes for the higher level Mississippi politicians. But nothing incredibly aggressive, if if that's what you're asking. Yeah, no, I'm just curious. You know, we hear a lot of of times for bigger stories, long-form investigative stories like that, there generally is some pushback from whoever's going to end up looking bad on the other end of it. But um, it sounds like this is a problem of such scale that, you know, that it needed to get out and probably everyone knew that it, it, it needed to get out. You have a lot of situations where law enforcement is not that open to reporters coming in, but I think what was extremely telling is how open the Calhoun County Sheriff was and all of his deputies were really open because I think they see this as such a problem that they really bear the burden of and they know this is not the right situation, that they were incredibly welcoming and really wanted a story to be told. And as we wrap up here, you touched on it a few minutes ago, but it's only been two months or so since the story is published. Has the state, the state legislator, anything sort of done anything to, to fix this? Have they talked about rearranging anything in the budget to account for the fact there are only 15 beds available for evaluation in the state or anything like that? Have we seen anything from the government since this was published? Um, Well, Mississippi is actually in their legislative session right now. There are some bills that would allocate more money for the Department of Mental Health, um, for more beds, for community mental health treatment, for um, the bigger facilities. But again, I don't know how theirs are going to go as they're still in some of the earlier days of session yet. So I guess at this point, it's a lot of watch and wait. Thank you so much for coming on. It's really good to sort of dive into this stuff and sort of see, take a deeper look uh, at how these stories develop and, and what the situations are on the ground out there. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was uh, fun to take a look back on it.